This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, April 11th, 2022. I'm Kyle Callums. And I'm Matthew Moore. This is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead this hour, a collection of archives from the Prior Center of Arkansas Oral and Visual History regarding the rise of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And, in about 15 minutes, an effort to legalize Sunday liquor sales in two northwest Arkansas cities. First up poet Maggie Smith. Her title poem from her collection, Good Bones, became part of the zeitgeist in 2016, a year that featured the Pulse nightclub massacre and a foul election season of name-calling needed the poem. The words conjure a way to explain, or not, the ugliness the world can create to children. Within days of publication, it was shared on social media and across airwaves. While Good Bones may be the most famous poem Maggie Smith has authored, it certainly isn't the only one that resonates with readers. Smith, whose most recent collection of work is last year's Goldenrod, will be at the Fayetteville Public Library Thursday night at 7. It's a presentation of the University of Arkansas program in creative writing and translation and the Arkansas International. We recently reached Maggie Smith at her home in central Ohio on Zoom. Our discussion touched on a number of subjects, including poetry that concentrates on the sad or melancholy aspects of life. I asked her if she ever felt oddly comforted by reading such work. I think so. I mean, it's sort of how, um, you know, sometimes listening to sad songs gives you that kind of cathartic feeling, you know, or watching a, a watching a sad movie. Like, you know what you're in for, but somehow it makes you feel better. Um, you know, writing about say, you know, something painful or something difficult, or maybe writing, writing from a place of grief or questioning. I I wouldn't say it's necessarily therapeutic, but there is something to say for having made something concrete from that experience. Like no matter what it is, I have this thing to show for it. And, and often, I mean, I think about writing as sort of a conversation I have with myself on paper So it's a way of me kind of like puzzling through something for myself. And even if at the end of writing that poem, when I finally decide it's done, whether it's that day or three years later, even if I haven't quite resolved it for myself, there's still something satisfying about having made this thing from that feeling. And it's also such a personal medium. I mean, almost almost exclusively you're experiencing that as a reader with you and you yourself. You might read it out to a, a, a significant other. You might hear it at a reading, but it's almost always, and that really connects you almost more than any other media, I think. Yeah, it's a really intimate medium. And I think, um, you know, especially if, if often my poems are have a, a first-person speaker, right? So I'm speaking, there's an I in the poem. And sometimes there's a you in the poem, which may not be you, the reader, but I think it creates that sort of intimacy between the reader and the writer that um, it's it's maybe hard to get if you're reading um, fiction, for example. Well, that's so interesting that you bring that up because, yes, sometimes in poetry, yours, there's a you, and it kind of depends on where I am, whether I think you might be writing to me or you might be writing to someone else who's in that room. Right. Right. Or yourself. I mean, so often I write using second person and really the you I'm imagining is me. (laughs) I'm having a conversation with myself. I'm telling myself something I need to hear. Well, okay. so you said you had these conversations with yourself on paper. Do you have them within your head before you have them on paper or do you pretty much get that conversation going on paper first? I really try to write things down um, so I don't lose them because that's the problem. I mean, we are sort of living in a time of everything all the time. So between the phone ringing and the news dinging and my kids asking me for, you know, a sliced apple and this happening and the dog scratching at the door, if I get a little scrap of language or a line or a metaphor or something that I think is, you know, poem worthy or might might want to become a poem someday, if I don't write it down, there's a really good chance it's just going to and fly away. And so I try um, to always have a notebook handy so I can write something down or, or thankfully now, you know, I've got my phone and I can just type into the notes function on my phone. Or if I wake up in the middle of the night and I have an idea, I can reach over and, and write it down or I can use the, even the audio function and record something if I'm out on a walk. Um, and so, yeah, I really do try to record things as quickly as possible, even if they live in that sort of fragmented form 
for a while before I get back to them and sort of think, can I make something else from this? Is there a danger that you're never turned off then? I mean, you might be on that walk and you might see, I don't know, a squirrel or a limb or something and boy, that could trigger creativity. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I do think, you know, my antenna is sort of always raised and, um, you know, my kids will laugh, like we'll be walking the dog and I'll look up and I'll say, oh my gosh, look at this. Or did you hear that? And they're like, we know it's a metaphor or mom's going to write that down. Yep. Yep. That's, that's definitely going to be something. And they just sort of tease me, but you know, I do try to have times where I'm just in the moment, but if I notice something and it, it seems you know, worthy of keeping. I try to keep it as quickly as I can. I know you've said that there, the phone can ring, the news can ding, there can be children and dogs that need attention. So I'm wondering, do you find yourself as someone who kind of writes in spurts, or do you have this sort of linear, scheduled creativity pipeline? If only. Um, no, I definitely don't have, n- nothing in my life works in a sort of linear, organized way. <laughs> I think that's just single parenthood. Um, so no, I don't I don't have really a schedule. Um, my brain is sort of more primed for poetry first thing in the morning and late at night. And I've just learned that about myself over the years that midday is not a great time for me to work on poems. Um, it might be a great day for a great time for me to go into a draft that exists and tinker or revise or revisit something. But I tend to compose. Um, first thing in the morning or late at night. And I've, I've talked to some other writers and, and even songwriters about like, why are these periods of the day fruitful for that? And, I, and, and we seem to have come to some agreement that it's like that sort of fuzzy boundary time between like wake and, waking and sleeping when you're not sort of into the business of your day yet, or maybe the sort of business part of the day is over. And so you're less distracted, um, maybe by all those other kinds of of things. And so I try to I try to carve out time for writing in, in those periods of the day, and leave my midday for email and you know other kind of like administrative stuff. I think it, I think it was Ray Bradbury who called that those times when you like to write the theater of the twilight. That's when he said uh, his brain was kind of doing the function that he needed to write midday for emails can emails can single parenthood all these things that can of course occupy your time but can they also serve as inspiration is it sort of a a full circle oh sure i mean i'm collecting always like a magpie you know any little shiny thing i can get my hands on and so there are you know there are poems in goldenrod that were born from seeing someone else's tweet. And, um, you know, there's a poem called Poem Beginning with a Retweet that begins with someone else's tweet. There's a poem inspired by autocorrect on my phone as I'm trying to text and it won't let me say the thing that I want to say. Um, So there, it's definitely um, the case that sometimes even watching a TV show or seeing a commercial or reading a news headline or seeing a meme that sometimes they kind of strike me in an odd way. And I think there might be a poem in there. Um, thank goodness, right? That just throughout the day, some of some of these things which seem like um, they could be clutter otherwise can be repurposed. <laughs> I, here's another one of those questions that only a non-poet can ask, but I sometimes wonder if a title comes before a poem. My One of my favorite titles ever is You Could Never Take a Car to Greenland. And you just read that and you go, well, I got to read this because, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was something my daughter said watching a a nature documentary about Greenland. I mean, that's, again, watching a nature documentary about Greenland. Like, you just don't know where the poem's going to come from. I tend to do titles last. um, and, And it's one of the hardest parts about writing a poem for me is naming it. And so oftentimes... I will like look at the first line of the poem and think, okay, can I pull that first line up and make that the title and then just start slightly later? And that way I don't have to come up with something else. Um, But titles are tricky. I would think so because often you might not have, you know, this isn't war and peace that you're working with as far as a body. I mean, there's, there's a limited amount. 
and you want it to complement the poem. You don't want to overshadow it. You don't want it to mislead. I mean, do, do you go through those sorts of thought processes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are like several different kinds of titles. There are bad ones. <laughs> And, and I mean, a title can be bad for a lot of reasons, but one reason might be it like steals the thunder from another part of the poem. So you don't want to take your like terrific final image and make it the title because then it might be a beautiful title. But when the person gets to the end of the poem, there's no surprise. It's like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. So that doesn't work. You don't want to announce the theme, quote unquote, theme of the poem. I mean, I, I don't. I don't really want to write a poem called Desolation that then describes how how I feel desolation. Like that doesn't seem interesting to me. Um, so I, I think about them as like ways to provide context sometimes or um, maybe a place to sort of give information to the reader so I don't have to use up space in a pretty small poem for like exposition. So if I can provide like a setting or a sort of an occasion even and set that up and give the reader a frame of reference in the title then I can just jump right in in the first line and not have to sort of worry about getting them up to speed. What I love about um, poetry is that it can the way we're organized and fixed now in 2022 it it can come out of left field. Someone doesn't expect a poem. You may be watching a presidential inauguration in the back of your mind you know there will be a poem but then Someone comes out and hits it out of the park or you hear the good bones or you are flipping through a magazine and there it is. And I think, I mean, it's easy for me to say because I don't make my living on writing poetry, but I think that's just marvelous that the unexpected, you go into a movie theater, you think you're going to see a movie, but when a poem hits you that you didn't even know 10 seconds before you were going to experience, that's wonderful. I love that too. And I think, you know, for all of the pitfalls of the internet and social media, one of the wonderful things about it is um, how much poetry is shared in those spaces. And so you might be scrolling through bad news, bad news, bad news, advertisement, advertisement, celebrity selfie, celebrity selfie, and then something that might just be exactly what you needed in that moment and you had no idea. And you're right, it's not the same thing as picking up a book of poems because you have the expectation that you're going to you're going to have time with that book of poems. It's the same thing with music. If you you are listening to the radio, you know you're going to hear another song. But if suddenly you're walking someplace and you hear a band playing from a street over, there's something kind of magical about um, art finding you where you don't expect it to find you. And, and I think, you know, poetry is doing that right now. Yeah. And uh, we've, I, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone. I think we're overly curated now. The, the element of surprise is gone because I can pick from the streaming service exactly what I want to watch. It's been yeah. an algorithm for me. And I think surprise, be it a poem, be it a song, can just turn your day around. That's a really good point. I mean, I think about that even with just listening to music. You can tell your Alexa like what you want to listen to. You can just name a band and it will play that band in your house all day long. I mean, we know who's calling us because we don't have, you know, landline phones anymore where it just rings and you have no idea who's on the other end and what they might want from you. Um, so I, I think you're right. The element of surprise because of the way that we've been able to sort of um, follow, block, sort, you know, it's, it is, um, it puts us in, in sort of little boxes in a way. And so when, when something can manage to find us despite those barriers, that's a really good thing. I like that because you popped a balloon in my self-righteous bubble there. I am not giving up caller ID. That's a surprise I do not miss. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I, I like, I'm like, oh, another call from my old friend, potential spam. I think not. <laughs> right. I, we cannot wait for the talk. Anything else you'd like to mention? Anything I neglected to ask that you'd like to share? No, no, I'm so excited to come. I have to say, um, I haven't, um, you know, been able to travel to to universities or libraries or or bookstores outside of my, you know, general area here in Central Ohio since February of 2020, and and actually my trip to Arkansas has been rescheduled twice because of the pandemic, and so I'm. I'm just really pleased to be able to come and have that um, in-person experience with with readers because it's 
you know, poetry is intimate. And so having, you know, put books out during a pandemic and like sort of lived on Zoom in 2D where you don't get to like sign a book and hand it to a person or see a person's face change when you read a certain kind of poem or even hear kind of a murmur in the room when something kind of lands, it's, it's been a, a really strange experience. Maggie Smith's collections of poems include the 2021 book Goldenrod, as well as The Good Bones, and The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison. She'll speak at the Fayetteville Public Library Thursday night at 7. It's a presentation of the University of Arkansas program in creative writing and translation and the Arkansas International, a publication of that program. We spoke by Zoom last month. This is Ozarks at Large. Ahead this hour, another session dedicated to the sounds of Arkansas history. Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History will help us follow the rise of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. From the day Walter Hussman bought the then-afternoon paper, the Arkansas Democrat, through the day the paper assumed the older Arkansas Gazette. That's in about seven minutes in today's Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College in Conway, home of Life Launch, a new one-week residential summer program for rising high school juniors and seniors to explore career planning and experience college life. Now accepting applications for its inaugural session, which begins June 2022. More information is available at hendricks.edu slash life launch. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. A local committee based in Benton County is working to keep more tax dollars local. Seems like a good idea, right? So what exactly does that mean? Well, it's really just what the campaign says. I mean... That's Clay Kendall, the chairman for the campaign committee called Keep Our Dollars Local. Currently, uh got an antiquated law on the books that's, you know, just really pretty pretty outdated. Odds are you're still not quite sure what the campaign really means, so let's clear it up. This campaign committee wants to keep more tax revenue local by allowing stores in Rogers and Bentonville to sell alcohol on Sundays. If you're like me, a Yankee who grew up in the Midwest, the idea of limiting the sale of alcohol might seem a little strange. I spent a decade in St. Louis, the home of Budweiser, and also the home of some of the loosest alcohol laws in the country. The 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is known as Prohibition, which banned the sales of alcohol nationwide in 1919. It was repealed with the 21st Amendment in 1933, but in Arkansas, it was still prohibited to sell packaged alcohol statewide on Sundays. A law was passed in 2009 giving communities the option to vote on allowing package store sales on Sundays. Today, there are essentially three categories of counties throughout the state. Dry counties, which do not allow the sale of alcohol at all, like in Crawford County. Wet, which are counties that allow all sales seven days a week, like Madison County. And damp. Yes, damp which is about what it sounds like. Benton County would fall into that category. Which gets us up to speed on Keep Our Dollars Local. Kendall argues that perhaps a Rogers or Bentonville native is looking to buy a six-pack of beer at a store on a Sunday and realizes they can't do that in town. So they have to go to a different town. You know, while they're there, there's a good chance they're filling up with gas, grabbing lunch, or, you know, spending money at other other spots while they're there as well and uh and it's a lot of tax revenue that's leaving our city and it just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense i mean i think it it would be one thing if you had to drive an hour or two to to be able to buy uh, alcohol on a on a sunday but when you can go right next door and do it and he's right it's not a matter of driving to the state line or to the next county many neighboring towns and cities in benton and washington county already allow sunday sales Springdale, Avoca, Pea Ridge, Garfield, Tawnytown, Decatur, Siloam Springs. Gentry, I think, has it on the ballot for their primary. I've, I've heard, uh, I've heard of a couple other communities that are are having the discussion as well. One of the quirks, I guess you could call it, is that you could go to a local brewery in Rogers 
on a Sunday and buy a six-pack of beer from their retail shelf. But you could not go to a local grocery store and buy that same six-pack of beer on a Sunday. Don't ask me to explain that one again. I think that was uh, some good lobbying and negotiation, uh, you know, and, and, and got slipped into a bill at the state level at some point. The morality of buying alcohol on a Sunday doesn't necessarily seem to be the issue here. As we pointed out, the law to allow packaged alcohol sales on a Sunday has been on the books for over a decade in the state. Kendall says they're purely looking at it from an economic perspective. You know, the benefits to our, you know, public safety, to our roads, you know, impact on schools, those sorts of things. In parts of central Arkansas, there are community leaders in wet counties who oppose dry counties changing their laws for exactly the reason Kendall talks about. Tax revenue from alcohol sales in wet counties that neighbor dry counties can be pretty significant. You know, when Benton County went wet, Springdale very quickly um, went to Sunday sales, and that was, you know, their solution to try to reduce some of the impact from the lost sales. Um, of, of us no longer being a dry county. But, you know, several of the, the retailers in, in those communities also have a presence in uh, Rogers of Bentonville, too. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, it may impact them positively or even, uh, you know, at least the retailers, you know, or be a wash. Now, from a tax dollar perspective, yeah, those communities are certainly very likely going to lose, lose a little bit of tax revenue. In order for this initiative to end up on the ballot this year, the committee needs to collect approximately 2,500 signatures in Rogers and around 2,000 separate signatures in Bentonville. If you want to find out more about the committee and their initiatives, you can find them on Facebook by searching Keep Our Dollars Local. Our main objective is to make the the Democrat as competitive as we possibly can. And the... uh, the primary beneficiaries of that of that action will be the readers and the advertisers in this community. That's Walter Hussman, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelms. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Randy Dixon, who's with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Welcome Hello, back. Kyle. Hello, Great Randy. Great to be here. Why do we hear the voice of Walter Hussman? Well, you know, last week we highlighted, we did the little time capsule on March of 1974, and one of the things that made news was Walter Hussman buying the Arkansas Democrat. And I had talked to him on the phone, interviewed him. We also had an interview from 2011 that the Prior Center did, and we decided it might be a good idea to, to profile Walter Hussman this week. And I should point out, when you say a Prior Center interview – you don't sit down with someone for 20 or 30 minutes. These are long-form career and life retrospective sorts of interviews. It's um, long-form interviews. We sit down and spend the day with someone so they can be five, six, seven hours long. So right. this was a long interview. It's posted on our website uh, under Arkansas Memories. So in 2011, you asked – well, it wasn't you. Who who the interview was? Uh, probably Scott Lunsford. Scott Lunsford. He does most of our interviews. He he's I'm, the Barbara Walters of the Prior Center. Absolutely, I'm yes. sure he asked about buying the Democrat. He did. He did. And um, well, this is what Walter Husband had to say. When you looked at the Arkansas Democrat in 1974, it was clearly a turnaround candidate. It had been uh, losing circulation steadily since. I guess since 1960-61, when it, at one brief time it had more circulation than the Gazette, and it had declined down to where it was around 60,000 60, or so daily circulation. The Gazette was over 100, maybe 110, 118,000 circulation, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, Sunday, the Democrat was a little closer than about 90,000 circulation, and Gazette was maybe 100 and. 20 or so. Uh, so, and uh, newspapers and the afternoon newspapers were generally declining around the country because of television. And so it looked like a great turnaround candidate. And so that, of course, I was 27 years old. I was full of a lot of enthusiasm. And uh, 
you know, and had gained just enough experience in the newspaper business to be a little bit dangerous to think I sort of <laughs> knew what I was doing, you know. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's the thing that appealed to me. Gee, here's a turnaround. We could turn this thing around. We could get it so it's gaining circulation again instead of losing circulation. Maybe get it back where it's profitable again because it had been losing money the last few years. So, uh, so it was a very appealing thing. And uh, also, you know, to uh, I'd already sort of committed I wanted to live in Arkansas, and Little Rock was the center of the state, the largest town in the state. I already made friends with people here and uh, living here in Arkansas. So it, it was a very, very appealing for a number of reasons. So, you know, now what do you do? You, you've got a number two newspaper. It's losing money. Um, and it's an afternoon paper. Um, you know, years later, and we'll we'll hear about this more. But Gannett, you right. know, that powerhouse of a publishing company, USA Today, and all that comes into the picture. But this is this is back in '74, and um, he buys the paper, and he sort of picks up the story right after the purchase. Yeah, of course, the first 12 years we owned the Democrat, we were not competing against Gannett, but we were still the underdog all 12 years because the Gazette was still a much larger paper, took in more revenue. Uh, they were solidly profitable. And Well, uh, you were an afternoon, right? Well, we, well, we were for uh, the first five years, and then we switched to morning. For, so we competed as the morning paper. Uh, for seven more years uh, before Gannett ever showed up on the scene. And that was still very, very challenging. But what we did consistently gain, after we became a morning paper, we did consistently gain market share until we got up to about, I guess we went from about 20% share of the revenue between the papers up to about 36% in 1984. That's when we finally started making money. So it was, you know, it was 10 years before we started making making a profit. And uh, it just turned out it was really, really difficult for a number two newspaper to, to gain ground on a number one newspaper. And it took us a long time before we could before we could really effectively make money doing it. And so now anyone who lived in Arkansas during this time remembers a pretty interesting newspaper war. Yes. Well, it, it's decided that uh, in order to be competitive, he's got to go head to head. So Meaning he has, going to the morning. Yes. Yeah. So um, he, he goes to a morning newspaper and um, he talks more in this 2011 interview with the Pryor Center about that. Before uh, we were a complimentary buy for the subscriber. You know, we complimented the Gazette. We tried to be a little more cleverly edited or covered local news a little differently or a little more thoroughly maybe than they did. But uh, we were not a substitute. And we realized the only way for us to ever survive is to be a substitute. And uh, so that was the hard part about that decision was um, – <laughs> was the fact that it was going to cost a lot of money to do that. That was the hard part. The, uh, the easy part was, you know, the appealing part was, well, if we're going to sh have to shut this thing down, wouldn't it be better to shut it down after we said we've tried everything? We, you know, you know we, we looked all over the country, took every idea we could find from everywhere else, we tried it, and it failed, you know, and so there's nothing else we can do. But if we hadn't tried that, we would always wonder, well, you know, we should have. Maybe we should have tried, tried everything, and we haven't tried everything. So that, that was the easy part of, of making the decision. And, uh, you know, once, uh, once we started and once we really, you know, we came out and started putting out a bigger paper and putting out a morning paper and our circulation started going up, our advertising started going up, well, then the hard part was, you know, how do we shut this thing down now? Because now we're starting to see success, and but yet we were losing more money, you know. So that that was the difficult part, and it was kind of like I used to say back in those days. It was kind of like, you know, you finally caught the tiger, 
But once you caught him, he took off running through the jungle as fast as he could, and you were holding on for dear life, and you really didn't know how to get off the tiger, you know? I mean, how do you, how do you get off of this thing once it's, the circulation's going up, the people are enthusiastic for the first time, there's an alternative to the Gazette that's actually a substitute, you know? Hearing him talk about it, it sounds like it was an exciting time, a thrilling time. And scary. And scary. Very exactly. scary. Yeah. Um, Taking that tiger by the tail. Right. Right. And, you know, so the, so the war is on. And it turns out it, you know, it ended up being a 13-year war. Yeah. You know, it started in 78. And, and it was funny. They, they didn't actually go to a morning paper. Well, they did, but not completely right away. I don't know if you remember, but for uh, during the onset, there was a morning and an afternoon version. I'd forgotten this. They did that for, for several months and then brought it on down to uh, fully a, a morning newspaper. Uh, and then, of course, that that was the newspaper war yeah. that ensued, and he enlarged the staff, um, had free want ads. You remember? Oh, the I free do want remember ads? that. Yeah, um, which and, of course now people wouldn't flinch at, but back then that was a big deal because that was a lot of revenue you were giving up. Well, and it caused a lawsuit. the The Gazette uh, filed an antitrust federal oh, right. suit against the Democrat. Yeah, uh, and the Democrat won. Yeah. You know it. They contended that they weren't trying to put them out of business. They were just trying to be competitive. Get readers. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and during that time, in about 82, they uh, went color. Yeah. And um, hired John Robert Starr from right. the Associated Press to become their managing editor. And he, of course, became this larger-than-life profile He really was. Person. He really was. But where were we? Gosh. So, um, so the war is on, and as anyone knows now, uh, Gannett ha- eventually says we're done. Well, they were spending millions and losing millions, and they finally said, yeah, they, they threw in the towel. And um, uh, Mr. Hussman talks about this meeting he had with Gannett when they won the war. When we finally sat down with Gannett— and reached an agreement. It was in uh, early July, and they were they were willing to, uh, if they couldn't sell the newspaper to somebody else, they were willing to sell us the assets. And uh, so we reached an agreement. Uh, we did not know how much the Gazette was losing, but we assumed they were losing a lot. Uh, we also assumed that if Gannett could not come into Little Rock and put us out of business, nobody else was going to assume they could either. Mm -hmm. So we thought once we signed the agreement with Gannett, probably no one else would buy the paper, although you never know. So I remember once we signed the agreement there in Washington, and I was with a fellow named Doug McCorkendale, who was their chief financial officer. And I remember we stood up from the table after we signed the agreement, and he reached out, and he said, congratulations. That... That was an incredible feeling that here are these people you've been competing with. You want to make sure, for Arkansas' sake, they don't end up with the only statewide newspaper, you know, that they were very gracious losers. And uh, they were, you know, to congrat- congratulate us, I thought that showed a lot of class. That, that was a great feeling. So while I had uh, Walter Husband on the line, I wanted to just get his thoughts about, you know, what is the state of newspapers today? Well, the state of newspapers today is terrible. Uh, They're really fighting for survival. They've been in a steady decline since 2006. So now we're looking at uh, 16 years of declining revenue. The state's topped out at just under $47 a year in 2006 and have declined every year and now probably under $10 billion a year. So it's been over a 75 to 80% loss in ad revenues for newspapers, which has mainly gone to Google and Facebook. And so the problem was newspapers 
got about 80% of their uh, revenues from advertising, and now that's shrunk by 75 or 80%. So it's kind of a wonder we still have any newspapers left. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, so many newspaper companies went bankrupt that the uh, debtors took them back over. And in many cases, the debtors were private equity companies, which really didn't buy their debt to take over the paper. They bought the debt to get a really high interest rate. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then when they suddenly owned them, they thought, what are we going to do with these things? They're in decline. And they basically decided, well, let's just squeeze them dry until there's nothing left. And uh, so that's, you know, that's been very unfortunate that very few newspapers have been willing to reinvest in any way, uh, you know, in, in the people or in the, in the property of plant and equipment that they need. So He's pretty honest there. Yeah, Ain't he great. was. Yeah. Right, right. But, you know, they're, they're doing their part to survive. And um, so, of course, the next logical question was, what what's the future and trying to find some solution for sustainability and we don't think the solution is to cut your newsroom in half and to cut your pages of news and to, you know outsource your printing so the paper gets printed six or seven five six seven hours away that's what a lot of these papers have done and so we still you know uh and and so we realize there's really probably no hope unless it's digital but digital doesn't seem to be working really well for, for uh, you know, for you know, metropolitan, regional, and small town newspapers. Uh, they just can't get enough scale to get enough, uh, you know, get enough subscribers to to cover their newsroom costs. So our solution was, well, why don't we try digital with with a with a version of the printed edition, and so people. Mm-hmm you know, make only one transition to digital instead of two. Most newspapers ask people to go from print to digital, but they also ask them to go from a print format to a scrolling website format. And we're only asking them to do one thing, go from print to digital, go from the print format to the print format. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's worked really well, especially as far as the subscribers are concerned because they almost universally tell us after they've done it for three or four weeks. We can't believe it. We like it better than print. Now, we found out recently yeah, that we there were are sitting still... in the studio talking about, well, I saw a copy of the newspaper at the grocery store. And I said... And it wasn't a Sunday. And I said, no, you didn't, Randy. And you said, yes, you did. So we called the grocery store. We picked up the phone and... Guess what? To do a little more in-depth research yes. for this segment, I started calling around the state, and I found out that Harps stores, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, I mean, all around northwest Arkansas, they all carry the Arkansas Democrat Gazette on a daily basis. Printed. Printed. And... I called Central Arkansas all the Kroger stores, hmm. Little Rock, Conway, Russellville. You can get papers there. And I called <laughs> the uh, the Walmart neighborhood uh, markets, and they carry it. You can buy a Monday paper or a Thursday paper if you want to pay the price. Yeah. So what's what what would what would my habit of wanting the printed paper Monday through Saturday cost me? Well, three dollars mm-hmm. from Monday through Saturday, and five dollars for a Sunday. So there you go. Go to Harps or Kroger or Walmart neighborhood market, depending which part of the state you live in. You can get it. Apparently so. What are we going to talk about next week? Oh, this is a good one. Yeah. Uh, anyone who remembers '70s Southern rock and roll. Mm-hmm. We'll remember a group called Black Oak, Arkansas. Jim Dandy to the rescue. They are still around, and so is Jim Dandy. So uh, I talked to him, and, uh, well, I'm not going to give anything else away, but there's a, an opportunity for you to hear them live coming up here, here locally. Springs. That's right. 
All right. I look forward to this. Thank <laughs> you, Randy. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse, a celebration and exploration of Southern Black culture from the past 100 years. This nationally recognized exhibition presents visual art, textiles, and sound components to exhibit the persistence of power through expression. Open through July 25th crystalbridges.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Economists in Arkansas predict some state markets will soon reflect the increase in interest rates by the Federal Reserve. This week on Arkansas PBS, Jeremy Horpidal, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Central Arkansas, said the housing market could be among the first to be impacted. As those rates go up, that could slow the housing market as well. We've seen significant growth you know, across the country, but even in Arkansas, which is often kind of insulated from these housing price bubbles, uh, we have seen pretty significant increases uh, in Arkansas. And so as we see those mortgage rates go up, that can, that's going to potentially cool the housing market as well. Last month, the Fed announced a quarter percent point increase to interest rates as a tool to curb inflation. Additional rate hikes are expected up to six more times this year in response to slower than expected economic recovery. The Fed noted the Omicron variant spread in China and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have contributed to prolonging inflation in the U.S. The Arkansas Department of Health counts 30 new cases of COVID-19 in Sunday's tally. That's the second lowest one-day increase this year. Three newly reported deaths were included in Sunday's count. More than 11,300 Arkansans have died from the virus. Last week on Ozarks at Large, we talked to the creatives behind the Smokehouse Players' production of Love Letters. The first night's performance directed all proceeds raised to Magdalene Serenity House. The Smokehouse Players say that Thursday night's box office translated to $10,000 for the nonprofit dedicated to helping women who have been affected by sexual exploitation, addiction, or incarceration. The ninth-ranked Razorback softball team is off today after completing a three-game sweep of Auburn yesterday in Fayetteville. In yesterday's 17-4 win, Hannah McEwen became the program's all-time leader in runs scored. The senior has crossed the plate 185 times as a Razorback. Arkansas will host SEMO for a doubleheader tomorrow night at Bogle Park, beginning at four. That is a lot more times than I have crossed the plate. <laughs> the number two Razorback baseball team dropped two of three games at Florida. It's the first time the Razorbacks have lost a conference series since 2019. Arkansas will host Arkansas Pine Bluff tomorrow night at 6.30. And so not only can you see the defending SEC champion softball team here tomorrow night or the SEC defending champion baseball team, but you can also see the defending champion Northwest Arkansas Naturals. The Nats' home season opens at Arvest Ballpark tomorrow night against Wichita. Now, saying what the Naturals' defense is of is a bit tricky. Last year, the longtime Texas League wasn't called the Texas League for the first time in more than a century. Major League Baseball became the owners of most minor leagues and, because of legal issues, couldn't use the traditional league names. So last year, the Nats played in the incredibly unromantic AA Central League and won the title. This year, the legal matters have been resolved. It is again the Texas League. After a long pandemic, are you looking for ways to get back into your community? KUAF wants to ease this burden by providing you with opportunities to connect with your community. And what better way to connect than to find ways to serve your community? KUAF is launching KUAF Reengage. The goal of KUAF Reengage is to create an army of KUAF volunteers available to serve our community as things arise. We want to be a resource to our community partners and their needs as they serve the entire KUAF listening area. So join us for KUAF Reengage April 22nd here at the studios. For more, KUAF.com. A pleasant Monday. This is Ozarks at Large. Thank you to Old Man Saxon and The Odd Soul for the live music and pizza, respectively, that created Friday's Lunch Hour in the Lobby at the Carver Center for Public Radio, sponsored by Georgia's Majestic Happy Hour. The Lunch Hour crew, led by Jasper Logan, KUAF's Community Engagement Officer, is already working on details for the May edition of The Lunch Hour. Stay tuned to KUAF and our social media channels for more information about the next free musical event from your public radio station. Speaking of free music, there will be plenty this approaching Friday and Saturday at the Jones Center in Springdale. The inaugural Arkansas Black Music Expo is the next celebration from the nonprofit Music Moves, 
Gospel, blues, jazz, rock and roll, just about everything else in between will be highlighted. We invited Anthony Ball, a founder of Music Moves, to come to KUAF to give us a preview. He says the weekend will begin with the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff Marching Band. First of all, we're, we're parading into the to the uh, into the event with a UAPB marching band M4. Uh, of course, if you're going to bring a marching band into this thing, you got to march into it. So uh, we got we got some bands, we got some truly some cheer squads, uh, we got some community organizations that's going to be marching in with us. We even got a bunch of uh, you know UAPB alumni that wanted to to get in the, in the party too so uh we're parading to it and but then you know when we get there it's just going to be a huge celebration of black culture you know you got live music you got a bunch of food trucks that's black minority owned uh and you have like this we're going to have a really really huge kid zone that i'm really really excited about too like we got all these bouncy house we got a laser attack installation that's coming um we got some cycling uh stuff that's going to be coming to promote cycling you know of course you know no Arkansas is big with outdoors and cycling and stuff like that so we're going to be doing that as well too so it's going to be a lot of pieces but we're coming to celebrate music and black culture so that's the meat of this thing of course we're going to have a bunch of bells and whistles that's around it we got the police department the fire truck coming we'll be, you'll be able to honk the horns and, and jump on it with the kids but we just wanted to create a family friendly atmosphere uh, everything is opening back up safely you know uh, still dealing with the pandemic but this was a perfect way to come together and bring the community together. Um, so I'm really, really excited about all the things that's going on. Carl Thomas, he's a, a, a huge R&B artist in the early 2000s, uh, Grammy-nominated. Kurt Whalem, he he's a guy that that most people probably don't know when you say his name, but when uh, there's a that was that huge um, Whitney Houston song uh, with the sax solo that was Kurt Whalem. Uh, and of course, he's like one of the. When you talk about jazz and gospel and smooth jazz, he's one. Of the, he's like one of the icons in that in those genres. And of course, again, we have uh, M4 UAPB marching band. Of course, Funk Factory. A lot of other uh, local and uh, regional artists as well too. Bang, uh, hip hop artists. So I'm really excited, man. It's all hands on deck. It's two days. It's that Friday and that Saturday. It's Easter weekend. So a lot of family is going to be in town. My family is coming up for that whole weekend. So it's going to be a great. It's, it's going to be a great time. I walk in. What will I? There will be a stage. How will it be organized? And how did you decide what live music will happen when? Well, so as far as the live music, we just wanted to have a buffet of all of it. Of course, uh, when you're talking about the the, Im, the imprint and the footprint, uh, an impact of black artists, black um, genres, it's everything. You know, you got soul, you got gospel, hip hop, uh, rock and roll. So we're going to have all of it. We just released our music lineup. You can see that on our Instagram, our Facebook page, and our uh, website, www.musicmovesar.com but uh, when you go into it of course it's a celebration balloons everywhere uh, colors everywhere people everywhere we're expecting a great turnout but uh, when you go in it's going to music is going to be the focal point uh, it's going to be outdoors at the Jones Center of course you got that outside stage that was built there and in, in, uh, where, where the fountain used to be at so as soon as you walk in you'll see that stage outside uh, in the grassy area there if you're familiar with Jones Center uh, on the north end of the, uh, the the front entrance that whole grass area that's going to be our uh, kid and family uh, installment uh, you know what we call our kid zone so bouncy houses um you know, bikes, uh, you know, magicians, painting, every everything. Crystal Bridges, they'll be there uh, with artists doing uh, paintings, uh, live paintings and stuff like that as well, too. So it's going to be a lot going on. You cannot talk about music without talking about the contributions by black musicians Absolutely. And, and songwriters. And what it turns into is I think people will go there and go, oh. Uh, I mean, if you didn't know or if you weren't consciously thinking, yeah. it's like, of course. Yeah. Well, and that's why that's why we're doing it. You know, like we, we want to educate people about black art. 
You know, uh, of course, everybody has appreciation um, for the contributions of it. But I don't I don't know in Northwest Arkansas if we've presented it in this way where people can come and get a presentation of it uh, and, and have that full tie in. So that's that's why that's why we put this thing together. Going to be tough for you, a musician, to I guess you're going to be running point during these two days. I, I, yeah, so I, I I tried my best not to be on stage this week, uh, this this uh, 15th and 16th weekend. I am sneaking on stage with Funk Factory, uh, uh, and 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 that's it. That's that's all I'm doing because I want to be able to to you know keep running point and uh, make sure everything's going smoothly. But myself, I'm going to be looking at the crowd. I'm going to be crowd watching. You know, I'm going to be people watching because. I, I want to see their interaction and, and their reaction. Anthony Ball is a founder of Music Moves, the presenter of the inaugural Arkansas Black Music Expo at the Jones Center, taking place Friday and Saturday. You can learn much more at musicmovesar.com. He visited the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio earlier this month. Tomorrow on our show, outer space and some really big existential topics. So one of the primary drivers of this telescope, of building it the way we did, was to be able to capture light from the very first epoch of galaxies that were born after the Big Bang. Dr. Amber Strawn, an astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and a University of Arkansas graduate, visited us last week. That conversation and more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7. And by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. It's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. I'm joined over the phone by Destiny Schlinker, Associate Director of Food Corps Arkansas. Destiny, nice to speak with you. Nice to speak with you, Pete. Y'all have got, uh, actually, you're looking to uh, make some hires. If you could give us an overall summary of this group and its role in our community. We are a nonprofit that works to connect kids to healthy food and schools. So we place AmeriCorps service members in elementary schools across Arkansas, and they are trained in and serve in three areas of service. They lead garden and nutrition education programs with a focus on hands-on learning, healthy school meals, and school-wide culture of health. So with hands-on learning, that could be um, garden lessons in the garden, the classroom, or in a cooking setting. It could be after-school programming or summer cooking camps, summer garden camps, so a wide variety of things. We have over 120 lessons that are aligned with our school standards, so the teachers really love when their students can get their hands dirty with the service members in the garden. And then the school by culture of health piece is really bringing to life the visions of the schools. This can be getting a mural painted in the garden, working with other local organizations to get more fresh food and summer meal distribution or get parents out to the farmer's market or make a family cookbook. So it really just depends on what the school is excited about there. So Food Corps Arkansas currently seeking the next class of paid full-time service members. Uh, Eleven positions will open. Speaking with Destiny Schlinker, Associate Director of Food Corps Arkansas. So anyone who's excited about working with children, excited about healthy communities, we encourage them to apply. You don't have to have a specific background or skill set. It's really just coming in with the right attitude. How can someone learn more or even uh, throw their application in? Find us on social at Food Court Arkansas, or you can visit us online at www.foodcore.org, and Food Court is spelled C-O-R-P-S. Destiny Schlinker with Food Corps Arkansas. Destiny, thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. We appreciate it. The Community Spotlight in KUAF. Your voice matters. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Avoca. Contributors today included Randy Dixon. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can learn more about us at OzarksAtLarge.com. KUAF Center Writing Director is Rhonda Dillard. You can hear our show when you want, where you want, by subscribing to our free podcast. And you can use our app to find past shows, too. Thanks for listening. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. We're back tomorrow with another new program. Be well.